So um, when I was a kid, uh, I always wanted glasses, like all the time. Isn't that weird? It's weird. For a little stint, I wanted braces too, which is like even weirder, but um, I wanted glasses. And I think that I, I wanted glasses because my dad had glasses, and you know, like you want to be like your dad when you're a kid. So I thought it would be great to have glasses. And now that, um, now that I have glasses and need glasses, uh, my perspective, my view of what that looks like has changed. One is uh, these glasses that I have, um, I've had the same kind of frame for probably the past 10 years or so um, to where they have actually become a part of my face. I'm not kidding. Like some of you I have passed running on the trail before without these jokers on, no clue who I am, right? So me thinking that the glasses were awesome has changed a little bit. The other thing that I don't like about the glasses is that I've come, become dependent on them. So when I, started, uh, when I started here about nine years ago, I had this little pocket Bible that was awesome, and I could kind of take it with me wherever I go. Um, now the pocket Bible is of almost no, I mean, it's the living word of God, right? But it's really of no use to me because I can't see it. I got to have the glasses. Even with the glasses sometimes, I feel like I'm just kind of like stretching out. But one thing that these glasses do is they, um, they help me see better. My perspective on life is different with these on than with them off. Can I get hands for anybody that has glasses or contacts? Look at all you people with poor vision. <laughs> Bless the Lord. Um, but you know when you don't have those glasses on or you don't have your contacts in, it changes the way you see. Like um, our breakfast room is the length of the, of the kitchen away from uh, the microwave. So if we're sitting at the table and I want to look and glance and see what time it is, I got to have the glasses on. Otherwise, it's like these kind of like hieroglyphic little boxes that the microwave kind of puts out. I have to have the glasses on for my perspective to be correct and for me to be able to see what is directly in front of me. Um, and I find that the, the older I get, the more my vision fades, the more my prescription increases, and the more to be able to have the proper perspective on life, to be able to view things rightly, I'm dependent on these things. I have to have them. Now, these glasses, they're just one thing in my life that shape perspective. Um, they shape physically the way that I see, the way that I visually intake things. But there are many other things that shape the way that I view life in general. And that's what, what perspective does. It shapes the way that we view life. My background, my family upbringing, my personal experiences, positive interactions, negative interactions. For me and for all of us, all of those things, they shape our perspective. They affect the way that we view life. And they affect what we do. So like our perception of ourselves, the way that we view ourselves, um, our, we can be overinflated, we can have a high view of ourselves, and we see everything in life through the lens of us. Our perspective is shaped by me. What can you do for me? How awesome can you think that I am? Or if I am more self-deprecating, I don't have an overinflated view of myself, I have an underinflated view of myself. I, my perspective in life is this, I am less than, I am worse than, everybody thinks poorly of me. So everybody that I come across in life is shaped by that perspective. Um, think about our, our perspective and the way that we engage others. We can see life as a mean to serve others or we can see life as a means to be served, all based on perspective, the way that we view life our perspective affects what we do. Even the day-to-day, -day, how we process um, uh, today and how we process tomorrow, it's all affected by our perspective. 
We can say today is going to happen, and so whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. Or we can see that today is one day, and it's unique. And God's given it to us, and it has purpose. So let's use it and squeeze every ounce of Jesus-centered life out of it that we can, because we have today. Seize the day. The great thing, um, there are so many great things about Scripture, but the great thing about the passage that we're going to look at today is we get a glimpse into Paul's perspective on life. And it's so rich. We get this glimpse into seeing how he viewed life, how his perspective shaped the way he lived and also shaped the way that he, um, that he acted, the things that he did. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 12 this morning. If you want to flip there, it's going to be on the screen above too. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. We're going to read this passage together, and as we read it, we're going to um, see kind of a biography, a personal, an autobiography, a personal account from Paul on his perspective in life, and we're going to see some parallels for us. So Paul, um, let's remember as we read Philippians that Paul was writing this letter to a church. He was writing it to people that would actually read it and be encouraged by it. And so this morning, as we read it, God's word to us We read it, we're encouraged by it, we're challenged by it as well. So this is Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12. It says, Not that I have already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what happens in this passage? We're, we're sticking in verses 12 through 14 this morning because there's a lot to be said for this one uh, small section of Scripture. What comes before it is just so, so rich. Paul's going through this, um, this testament of kind of what his history and his background and even kind of what is in his responsibility, what he has in front of him today. And he says, everything I have, I count as loss. Everything I have, I count as trash compared to knowing Jesus and being found in him. Okay, so he's setting out this this kind of idea. I want to be found in Christ and I'm gonna lose anything or I'm gonna count anything worth losing just to be found in him, to live in relationship with him. But then he also kind of takes it a step further and he says, I'm gonna be found in him while I'm here today. But one day... This body is going to be resurrected and I'm going to be with Jesus face to face. While my salvation is real and it's secure and I live in light of it today, Paul says, one day that salvation will be realized. At the end of this earth, when all of us have breathed um, our last breaths or the coming return of Jesus is made manifest, we're going to see Jesus face to face. History will stop and a new chapter, an eternal reign will begin. And those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, have faith in him that he has come and lived in perfection on our behalf, that he died taking our wrongdoing, our sin upon himself and dying on the cross, and that he rose again from the grave only for us to rise again with him and live with him for eternity. When we see him face to face, our salvation will be made real. It'll be physical, tangible, right in front of us. So those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we will spend eternity, all of time, past history, with Jesus. Those of us who don't have faith or hope in Jesus will spend eternity separated from him, which is the deepest, darkest place we could ever imagine to be. Separation from God 
forever. But what Paul is saying, he's saying that one day, this is verses 11, uh, 10 and 11, that one day I'm going to see Jesus face to face. The resurrection perfection that only comes in Christ, where there will be no more sin, no more offense toward God, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more weeping. We will be with Jesus face to face in perfection. Resurrection perfection. But in verse 12, that's what, not what he says where he is now. Look again at verse 12 again. It says, not that I've already obtained this, obtained this resurrection perfection that only comes in relationship with Christ, or I'm already made perfect. And then jump down to thir- the first part of 13 too. He says the same thing again. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul is acknowledging his perspective on himself here. Paul is acknowledging that he had not arrived. He had not come to a place of full perfection in relationship with Christ. He's, he's saying that, that he has not arrived at a place of even complete maturity because that will not be fully achieved until we see Jesus face to face and we are fully known and we will fully know him. He had not arrived. Now, the thing about Paul that I think is really interesting is that um, he's, a, he's writing to a church. He's a, he's a church father. He's planted churches. Um, he's uh, basically, as we see in the New Testament, the gospel is going forth to the nations through the ministry of Paul, right? It's, it's, it's every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. It's, it's spreading out. It's going forward. So the people that are getting this letter, they probably have this really high regard for Paul, They probably think, you know, this is the man that he has written letters of. He's been shipwrecked. He's been persecuted. He's been beaten. He has um, remained alive. That there must be this kind of special favor or special position that Paul has among above the rest of humanity. But what Paul is saying is, I am not perfect. I have not yet attained it. I haven't. I haven't arrived. What this means, if if we're saying, if Paul is saying that he is not perfect, he is saying that he is imperfect that he understands the struggle of life living in a fallen world. Temptation, failure, struggle, regret, all of those things Paul is identifying with when he says, I have not yet attained it. I haven't arrived. I'm not yet perfect the way that I will be one day when I'm with Jesus. He also reminds them that there's not this partiality in the economy of God's kingdom. God doesn't play favorites. God uses each of his children according to his own intended purposes for them and is good for us. Paul has not yet arrived. As we stand here and we read this passage, we're able to identify in his little autobiography here. We can say the same thing, that we have not yet arrived, that we understand imperfection, that we understand living in a fallen world. The problem with this is, is that our pride tells us the exact opposite of that. Our pride tells us that we have arrived, that we can make it on our own, that we are in a place where we understand, where we can lead without dependence, where we are self-sufficient. And self-sufficiency is the opposite of the gospel. Self-sufficiency tells us that we need to look outside of ourselves, uh, nowhere outside of ourselves for salvation. Self-sufficiency says we need to look nowhere outside of ourselves for purpose, for meaning, but that it can be found in us. But we are not perfect. 
We are not self-sufficient. God has created us to be dependent people, to be dependent on him. So what do we do with our imperfection and, and our, and our uh, desire for self-sufficiency? Okay, so when we see Paul and he says, I've not yet arrived, I'm imperfect, I'm not perfect like I will be one day when I'm with Jesus, and we step back and we, we say we can identify with that. We take a look at our lives, we look in the mirror, we see our relationships with others, and our imperfection is just so ravenously clear to us, right? Think through this morning, the past, your past three hours. Think through your yesterday. Think through the way that you've interacted with the people that are closest to you or the way that you've even thought when you're alone by yourself. We're imperfect. We're fallen people. We need to be redeemed, and Jesus offers that redemption. So what do we do when we recognize that we are fallen? I think there's a couple different places that we land. Um, The first one is we get so overwhelmed with the fact that we are fallen that we just give up. I think that this also translates to the way that we handle stress in life. So um, uh, are any of you, and you don't have to raise your hands because you may not want to do self-confession on this, are any of you, when your stress list kind of piles up and you think about all you have to get done, your response is, I have so much to get done, I just have to take a nap. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm seeing some head, heads on. I don't know if that's for your neighbor or for yourself, but you know what I'm talking about? There's so much to get done. I'm so overwhelmed. I gotta go lay down. Probably one of the most counterproductive things that we can do. I'm gonna go take a nap. I think that we often respond to our imperfection in the exact same way. I have so far to go. There are people that are so much further ahead of me. So I'm just going to go through the motions. I'm not going to do anything productive or proactive or invest in my relationship with Jesus. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to sit in a Sunday school class. I'm going to flip through the pages of my Bible in the morning, but with no intent to actually grow in relationship, to really move forward in and knowing Christ and being known by Christ and looking like Christ with my life. I think, so we can, we can say there's so much to do, I'm just going to do nothing. We can say there's so much to do, I better get to work. And we overcompensate, right? We do things in order, uh, all the time in order to feel like we are actually accomplishing something on our own. This, again, I think translates to stress. Some of us, when there's this list of things to be done, all we can think about is the list of things that need to be done. And so we're like staying up late, we're getting up early, we're forgetting that our family even exists, we have children, what are they for? You know, like all those sorts of things. We're just not acknowledging anything around us, but we're keeping our eyes on what we can accomplish next. And so we're overcompensating for our feelings or understanding of our own imperfection. We're working, 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 working for us. We're working, 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 working so we can feel better. We're overcompensating to justify. We're overcompensating to cover up our known imperfection. The last is, the last is just whatever happens. You know, like, I'm going to do stuff. I'm going to not do stuff. Like, whatever gets done, it's going to get done. We'll just, we'll just see. It'll all kind of, like, shake out in the end. Same way that we handle stress when it comes. We have all these things that need to be done. Well, I'm not going to take a nap. I'm not going to overwork. I'm going to like eat a sandwich and make a list and maybe I'll do some stuff off of that list at some point. We approach our imperfection the same way. Well, at some point in time, I'm going to, you know, like I'm going to follow Jesus one day and, and I, I may at some point really intentionally read scripture with, with an idea that God is speaking to, to me. 
And that when Jesus, when he calls people to follow himself, he's, he's calling me to follow himself. And that has implications today. Or, third point, so we can, we can take a nap, we can overwork, we can say, oh, whatever happens, happens. Or, when we look at our imperfection, we can choose to diligently and faithfully follow Jesus. Literally, follow him. What Jesus does is he doesn't call us out of our sin and into perfection. He calls us out of our sin into a relationship with him. And then we are, the way that that Paul writes about it earlier in this chapter, then we're covered with the righteousness of Christ. We're covered with the goodness of Jesus. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us like we're perfect. He looks at us and he sees the perfection of Jesus because he lived in perfection in our place. And he died in our place, taking our wrongdoing upon him so that Jesus is what covers us. But we're still imperfect people here on this earth, right? This is exactly what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7. He's saying the same thing. He's saying these things that I want to do are the things I don't do. The things I don't want to do, they're the things I keep going back to over and over and over again. We live in this imperfection, but we can choose to follow Jesus and to live in relationship with him, following after him. This is exactly what discipleship is, following Jesus. So we see um, at the beginning of verse 12, beginning of verse 13, we see that Paul has not arrived, and we acknowledge that too. We have not yet arrived. We are not in a place where we're, we're living in resurrected perfection with Jesus. But we look at, at, at the second point here. This is the second part of verse 12. He says, so he hasn't arrived, but what does he do with that? How does he respond to that? He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is exactly what we're talking about in our four responses. We can choose to follow after Jesus. He gives us his motivation for why he follows after Jesus here. He says, I press on to make it my own, to see my faith realized face to face with Jesus. I press on in relationship with Christ because he has made me his own. This, uh, this word uh, press on here, it's kind of like a runner's connotation, to swiftly chase after is literally the way the, the original text reads. So I chase after, I, I, I swiftly chase after Jesus. I follow him in order that I might have that final inheritance, that I might receive that home that will one day be in the kingdom of God and live face to face with Jesus. The thing about Paul, what we see here when he says press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You have to think that when he writes that, that he even thinks about his interaction with Jesus on the Damascus road that we read of in Acts chapter nine. Literally, Jesus pursued him in the midst of his rebellion, in the midst of persecuting the church, in the midst of living out an agenda that he thought was righteous, but really was a complete offense toward God as he punished those that were following Jesus. Paul's walking along the road and Jesus appears to him. He pursues him. My, uh, our, when we do our family devotion, sometimes we read this uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. I'm sure that some of you are familiar with it. And um, the way that the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, writes it, she says, um, G- Paul wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for Paul. That's exactly what happened here. Jesus pursued Paul. And that's what Paul is saying his response is here. What does he say? Look at the end of verse 12 again. 
He says, but I press on, I keep moving forward, I swiftly chase after Jesus because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He pursued me, he bought me, I am his. This is the truth of the gospel. It's the crazy exchange that only happens in God's economy. That in the midst of our complete pushing back and resistance against God, that he comes after us that he pursues us with the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And he offers us his riches, the riches of Jesus in exchange for our offense, for our rebellion, for our push against him, for our striving for self-worth, for trying to cover up our imperfections. God exchanges the righteousness of Christ for our unrighteousness, the perfection of Jesus, he exchanges for our imperfection. And this is exactly what happened with Paul. His motivation to keep going is Jesus himself, the one who's rescued him, the one who has redeemed him, the one who has given him purpose and perspective. Jesus is his motivation to keep going. And our motivation this morning to keep going is Jesus. Did you hear what I said? Our motivation this morning to keep going is Jesus. Um, As I have been praying through this sermon and this passage, um, there are some of us in this room that are just weary. That following Jesus in light of our imperfection, it just becomes so daunting and heavy. And at times we just feel like we're beating ourselves up against the wall, whether it's because of the people that we come in contact with, that they, they, don't, they don't care about the things of Jesus. And so their influence on us changes our perspective, or maybe it's our life circumstance that's said things are never going to change. This is always going to be hard. Is it even worth keep, keeping going? Is it even worth following after Jesus? We have to remember that our motivation to keep going, to keep chasing after Jesus, is him. He is our motivation. Not feeling better about ourselves, not an easier life, not acceptance from others, not thinking that things will get easier if we do, or prosperity will finally find me if I do, or the raise will happen if I do, or obedience for my children will happen if I do, or I will get into this school if I do. Our motivation for following Jesus is not so we can get the physical things that we want. Jesus himself is our motivation for chasing after him. He alone. It's the only thing we're guaranteed the only thing we're guaranteed. Jesus actually says in John, in this world, you're going to have a lot of trouble. It's going to be bad. But take heart. Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Our motivation to keep going, just like Paul's, the reason we press on is Jesus, is Jesus himself. So how do we press on? How do we follow Jesus? How do we chase after him? There are three things that, I, that are just very basic and elementary that I want to remind us of this morning. What following Jesus looks like. We, we acknowledge that we have not arrived. Our motivation for, for, to keep going in the midst of our imperfection is following after Jesus. Our motivation is Jesus. But how do we do this? One, we follow Jesus on our own. Okay, that means like me as a, as a Christ follower, me as someone who has put my faith and hope and find purpose in Jesus, I find him 
I pursue him, I chase after him on my own. We do this through, through reading scripture. Now, there are times where we can approach the Bible, where we can approach this book, and we're not approaching it as the active living word of God, that it's God's truth for God's people for all time. We don't, we don't approach it like that. We approach it as a thing on our list to cover up our imperfections. But as we intend to grow in relationship, to follow after Jesus, we approach scripture as God's word to us, to his people, that he's with us, that he speaks to us, that he guides us, that it's wisdom. The way that the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, that I treasure it above all else, God's word, because it's his, his, his speaking, his communication to me. We follow him by reading scripture. We follow him through times in prayer. We follow him even through silence, through doing nothing, through sitting and listening. The scriptures tell us that when we place our faith and hope in Jesus, that the spirit of God comes and lives inside of us. And that he prompts us, just like Michael was talking about. He, he, he prompts us, he speaks to us, he reminds us of God's truth for us. We sit in silence and we listen to that. Through practicing spiritual disciplines, and there are, there are lots of amazing books that talk about spiritual disciplines. Actually, when I was a, a freshman in college, um, Somebody, uh, somebody gave me a copy of Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, and it radically changed my understanding of following Jesus, okay? Now, this book, it opened me up to some ways of communing with God that I had never thought of before, but as I progressed in my relationship with Christ, I quickly turned what he had written into this checklist of whether or not I'm a good Christian, a checklist of whether or not I'm covering up my imperfections well, What spiritual disciplines are, they are tools that God gives us to have relationship with himself through Jesus. They're tools. They're not the end. The goal is not just to read your Bible. You can flip through it like you flip through a telephone book. The goal is to have an active relationship with the living God through the person of Christ. And he reveals himself to us through his word. We have to approach it like that. So we follow Jesus on our own. We follow Jesus together. God did not intend for us to follow Jesus as as a little island isolated by ourselves. We were never intended to go at it in this life like we had to make everything happen on our own with zero encouragement or accountability or correction or people to love or care or to be the, the tangible hands and feet of Jesus in our lives. We follow Jesus together. We do this in worship. This is what we're doing this morning. We're receiving and responding to the good news of Jesus, that he is a friend to the sinner and that he has bought us back from separation from God for all of eternity. That's what we're doing together. We're following Jesus together by receiving and responding to the gospel corporately. We do it through small groups. We do it through one-on-one conversations. We do it through encouragement. We do it through loving correction. This is exactly what Jesus did. He encouraged those that were with him. He called them into deeper relationship with himself. And we do that to one another. We encourage those that were around We call one another into deeper relationship with Jesus to chase after him. And then lastly, we follow Jesus for the good of others. As we follow Jesus on our own and we follow Jesus together, this affects all of life. Um, I think that oftentimes when we walk in these doors on 2017 Columbiana Road, we walk in the door and we pick up this vernacular and this way of thinking and this perspective that is specific to only when we're sitting in these pews 
and only when we're sitting in our Sunday school classrooms and we develop this divided life. When I walk in these doors, I think about these things. My heart moves in this direction. But God's intent for his people is that as we follow Jesus individually, as we follow Jesus together, that it affects all of life and it is for the good of our neighbors. It's for the good of others. That what happens when we're together, that what happens when I meet with Jesus on my own, it affects the way that I interact with my coworkers, with my neighbors, with my, with my children's teachers, with my children's friends, parents, with my siblings, with my parents. It, it affects all of life. Following Jesus permeates to the good of God being extended to others. So what did Jesus do as he interacted with people? He extended grace. He extended mercy. He extended compassion, but he called them away from selfless futility. He called them into relationship with himself. As we follow Jesus and we invest in our relationship with Christ individually and together, it affects those who are around us. We get to speak the good news of Jesus to people that are living in separation from him. That day that will come for us when we see Jesus face to face, we all will see him face to face some of us will be able to spend the rest of all eternity with Jesus. And some of us will not. As we follow Christ together, as we follow Christ individually, we get to speak that good news to others, speak the purpose-giving good news of Jesus to others. So he's, um, he's our motivation. We keep pressing on. The third point that we want to look at this morning that we see in Paul is that he kept the goal constantly in front of himself. Look at verse 13, the second part of it, and then the full of verse 14. Um, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what do I not do? I don't give up. What do I do? What is this one thing that Paul does? This is why we picked this verse to be a part of this series. Paul does something. His perspective on life shapes what he does. So what does he do? He keeps going. He keeps following Jesus. And how does he do it? He says, forgetting what, what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on for the goal of the prize, for the upward calling, the highest calling of God in Christ Jesus. Um, I think the way that Paul uh, does this kind of like perspective, this literal perspective shift here is really awesome. He says, I don't look to the past. I don't look to my past defeats or, or specifically what Paul's saying here is I don't look to my past victories. If you look earlier on in chapter two, he makes this list of why if he were gonna be someone who, who got, it, uh, got it right in religious terms, if he was gonna have arrived in religious terms, he was it. He was a leader in persecuting the church. He was an Israelite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He followed all the ceremonial laws. Even what he says is that when it comes to filling the law, I got it all right. I was blameless, is what Paul says. But I strain forward. I I keep looking ahead, not looking to my past of what I've done, not my past victories, not how I followed for us, not how I followed Jesus in the past. I keep my eyes looking forward. I keep looking to the goal ahead of seeing Jesus face to face. Um, so our cars, our cars have those, this awesome and horrible little invention on the back. There are these little sensors that whenever you put it in reverse and you get close to something, it beeps. You guys have those? It's 
trying to tell if you're getting close to something, if you're going to run into the thing behind you, which is awesome because you don't want to hit the car that's behind you or you don't want to hit the person that's behind you. And so if you're getting close, it like beeps with great intensity as you move closer and closer. The problem is I think that all cars have these now. And so when I get in them and there's not the little beepers, I pay, don't pay any attention to what's going on behind me and I almost hit the car, hit the person. I don't look behind me. It's, it's almost like this, the way that Paul is writing this, he's saying, I don't, I don't run the race, I don't press forward with my perspective solely focused on the rear view mirror. Can you imagine what that would be like if you were trying to drive forward, but all you could see, all that was in your direct line of vision was everything that was happening behind you? What a disaster. You could see like how you've kept it in the lines before, you could see how you swerved off the road before, You can see past victories, past defeats, but it's not moving you forward in any direction with clear purpose, with clear perspective. Um, So what's the difference between driving with our eyes focused on the rearview mirror or driving with our lines, our eyes not focused on the hood of the car, but focusing on the horizon, what's coming in front of us? Think about driving down the interstate. You keep your eyes focused on the hood, you're swerving all over the place. Keep your eyes focused on the rearview mirror, you're only going to know if there's a policeman behind you or not, right? But if you keep your eyes focused on the horizon, it gives you clear trajectory in moving forward. There's a goal in front of us. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He keeps the goal constantly in front of him. What is the goal? This distant mark that he looked at. The prize, an award that goes to the victor of the games, is literally how the original text reads. That's the intent there. I keep the prize, I keep the goal, I keep the award, I keep it plainly in front of me. And what is Paul saying that that is? What is he saying that prize, that award, what is he keeping in front of him? He keeps Jesus, seeing Jesus literally face to face in front of him. That one day all of this will be over. Physically, everything will be gone. At the end of scripture, it tells us that there is this new heaven and this new earth created and that God's dwelling place is with man, that we will see him face to face perfectly, living in light of his perfection. Paul keeps that in front of him. So how does that affect me today? What do I do with this today? If I'm, if I'm thinking this, it sounds like really ethereal, right? Well, I, if, if, if I want to, in the midst of difficulty and I'm pressing on, I keep the goal in front of me, I, I'm reminded of one day I'm going to see Jesus, that's, that's some motivation for us. The fact that living in, in perfect relationship with Christ is one day something that will happen, that's motivation. But think about it in, in relational terms. Um, last weekend, Holly, uh, my wife, she went away for 48 hours. Um, she is now a mother of four and it was well-deserved. <laughs> so she, uh, she went away to the beach and she slept and she read and she slept and she slept and she slept. Um, and while she was gone, I've got the four kids at home. My sister, Beth, who was awesome, she came down and helped out. But whenever, um, whenever Holly walked back in those doors on Sunday night, whenever I was going to meet her face to face, I didn't want her to, to, to look around and say, Chad must really have been scared that I was going to come home and be upset. The house is clean. The kids are alive. You know, like he must have really thought I was going to be mad if I came home and all these things were upset. All these things had gone wrong. While Holly was gone, I wasn't thinking about trying to win her approval. I already have it. I wasn't trying to think of earning her favor. I already have it. I wasn't trying to prove to her in some way 
that I love her. While she was gone, I took care of the kids. While she was gone, the house stayed clean because of my love for her, because I knew that Sunday afternoon she was going to walk in the door and we were going to see one another. And I wanted her to see the result of my love for her, not to earn anything, but the way that my love for her affects the way that I lived over those 48 hours. And it's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. We will one day see him face to face. One day what we see impartial now, we will see in full. And when we meet him, we wanna live a life that has displayed our love for him, that shows our devotion to him, not so that he will love us more, not so that we will gain anything else from him because he's already given us all that he could ever give us or all that we would ever need in our salvation but that he would see a life that is drastically affected by my end goal of being together with him face to face. So how does keeping the goal in front of us, how does it matter? It affects the way we live. We want to please our savior. We want to please our goal that one day when we see him, he will see the affection that we have for him. And not only will he see it, but the effects of the world will be known. People will have come into relationship with Christ. They will have seen the literal hands and feet of Jesus and the way that we've responded to following after him, being his disciples, being little Christs. As we keep the goal constantly in front of us, it shapes our perspective. What Paul is talking about is a perspective that is drastically influenced by the person of Jesus Christ. Any place we look, anything we touch, any opportunity that we have in front of us, we see it all through the lens of Christ. We see it all through the one that we want to live life following, chasing after. As we follow Jesus, as we live life with that perspective, we have purpose. We have purpose that doesn't disappoint, purpose that doesn't fade purpose that has eternal significance and value. So this morning, three things to encourage us. We need to remember our need for Jesus. We need to remember our need for Jesus, that we have not arrived. We res- second, we respond to Jesus' love for us by following after him. He is our motivation to keep on going. He himself. And third, we are ready for the day when we will be united with Christ. We keep the goal constantly in front of us. Paul's encouragement to us today is keep following Jesus. Whether you're nine years old or 90 years old, keep following Jesus. Keep following him individually. Keep following him together. Keep following him for the good of others. Keep following Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father, this morning we we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians and his encouragement even through his own life.
that he didn't have it together, that he had imperfection, that he messed up, but that one day he would see you, Jesus, face to face, and that that, that goal, that, that desire to one day see you, Jesus, gave him a perspective that shaped everything that he did. And so, God, this morning, we are not saying that we want to be like Paul. He's fallen, he was fallen just like us. But this morning, we, we pray that we would be encouraged by Paul's words, that we would be encouraged by Paul's words on his own life, that you would encourage us, Jesus, through your spirit. That your word tells us that when we come to you, that you extend to us grace and forgiveness and salvation. Salvation from death apart from you, an eternity separated from God. You offer us forgiveness and you also offer us relationship. You invite us, you invite us to follow you. So God, this morning, I pray that we would be a people that follow you, Jesus. We would be a people that follow you, that keep that day, that one day when we will be united with you, Christ. Keep it in front of us. This is not just a life of faith that we just kind of go through the motions, but God, you are a real creator who loves your creation and you've redeemed us back with your son. Jesus, this morning, we want to be a people found faithful following you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.